Good day to you and welcome back to Security in a Zero Trust World, powered by Unisys. I'm your host, Steve Mullen. With the word zero trust in the name of this podcast, it's no surprise that it's a topic that's going to come up now and again. In this episode, we're focusing on the adoption of zero trust cybersecurity by the United States federal government and how it compares to what's going on in the private sector and local governments. Joining us as guests for this episode are two experts. The first is from Unisys and is a voice you've heard before on this show. The second is from SAIC, one of Unisys's partners in the government space. Hi, I'm Russ Smith. I am the vice president for the cybersecurity practice at SAIC. And hello, my name is Matthew Newfield. I'm the chief information security officer here at Unisys Corporation. Thanks, both of you, for being here. This first question is for Russ. A 2020 Zero Trust report from GCN indicated that 72% of organizations have Zero Trust projects planned. What's the current state of Zero Trust for the federal government in the U.S.? Well, thanks. I really appreciate the the opportunity to be here. And it's really interesting from from our perspective at, at SAIC, what we're seeing, a lot of chatter around zero trust. And I really look at this as a natural progression that that we've seen for quite a number of years. As we built up that marginal line, that perimeter-based security, we started to find some significant holes in that. The the adversary was able to get in. We put a lot of effort into patching vulnerable software because we knew that the adversary was getting in. And we started to, to shift our focus and say, well, if we are not able to secure the enterprise at the boundary, we really need to get smart on what the adversary's tactics, techniques, and procedures. And we started to think about security operations as a capability to try to identify where the adversary could be to root them out. And then over time, we realized that that was very challenging. And the next evolution then was how do you do a better job within the enterprise itself at securing communications amongst all of the different resources that users are trying to get access to? And that whole idea of trust no one within the enterprise sort of evolved. And so while the term zero trust is certainly caught on and you know the, the stat there that 72% of projects have a, have a zero trust project underway, It's really about the recognition that we can't just secure at the boundary. We can't just keep up from a vulnerability patching perspective. We can't just do security operations and hope to catch the adversary prior to them either exfiltrating data or delivering malware. We had to do more than that. We had to recognize that we cannot trust anybody within the boundary. So from that perspective, 72% 72% makes a whole lot of sense, and it probably is, is going to continue to grow. What's happening within our customer base, in particular within the federal government, is they're looking at how to implement zero trust, given all of the cybersecurity tools that are already in the environment. And so the adoption of zero trust is early. I mean, they're experimenting with different tools, but they are frankly saturated with a lot of different tools that are already in the environment. In some ways, Zero Trust gives them a chance to clean out a lot of the redundant capabilities that already exist. 
But that's a real challenge. And and COVID-19 has clearly put an emphasis on how do we do a better job ensuring that all of those remote workers that are no longer resident within the on-prem enterprise can access resources within the enterprise, but do it remotely. So the future is definitely looking bright from a zero trust perspective, but there's a a lot of work uh, ahead of us. For the next question, though, I want to turn to Matt. It's a follow-up question. How is that similar to what you're seeing in the commercial world or even in state and local governments? Absolutely. What's interesting about what you heard Russ just talk about is we're seeing the same concepts in the commercial sector, but I actually think the commercial sector is a little further behind. At its core, what you're hearing Russ say and that I vehemently agree with is there's a mind shift change going on in the world of cybersecurity and the world of IT. And that is we have to make assumptions that bad things have already happened and that a lot of the bad things that happen within our infrastructure are not malicious in their initial intent. People make mistakes. People click on links. People go places on the internet they did not mean to go, which causes us problem. And that whole perimeter concept is really dead, right? I mean, it's the easiest way to put it is it's dead because it comes from a flawed mindset of if I build my walls thick enough, if I build my walls tall enough, bad things can't happen. And to what you heard Russ say, that's just not true. And we don't have walls anymore. We have people working from home. You have people working from coffee shops, working from planes, working from airports, hotels, et cetera. So the wall concept is gone. And that zero trust, that continuous verification, that minimization of what people can see, what people can do, and the constant verification as people are working throughout the day is going to be the new norm. But it all starts with that mind shift change. And what we're seeing in the commercial world and we're seeing in local and state governments is there's a lot of excitement around zero trust and what it can bring, but it's a long path to get the people who have been doing the work they're doing the same way they've been doing it for five, 10, 15, 20 plus years. It's hard for a lot of them to change that mindset so they can really understand what we're saying with zero trust. So back to Rusk, speaking of change, what is driving the federal government IT leaders to move to zero trust? There's a couple things happening. One is very practical, and it's the world we currently live in today, which is the increase in telework. And we're going to look back on this and and really consider this a significant milestone in the evolution of cybersecurity in that we now have to address the very real scenario where the workforce cannot be within the enterprise boundary. We, we can't expect them to be in facilities where we have a certain level of security built in just by their physical location. Clearly, the challenge then in the federal space where you're now dealing with national security information, you have to address classified workers and exactly what that means from a telework perspective. So that is clearly going to be a place where zero trust gives us a way forward, gives us a path forward to be able to secure the workforce even when they're handling classified information. And then some of the other influencers right now as the federal government moves towards zero trust 
really along the lines of DHS's trusted internet connection, the release of version 3.0, which is really giving us sort of the roadmap for how we need to enable the remote workforce to access through the internet resources the federal government is offering up. So that being able to architect the solution that adheres to the TIC 3.0 standard is a significant driver. And Zero Trust plays an important role in that. And then I'd say that the final thing, and because this document just got released in its final version, is NIST Special Pub 800-207, which gives the reader who's implementing a Zero Trust within the federal space the tenants that they need to adhere to to truly reach a, a Zero Trust architecture. So between... COVID-19 and the impact on driving the workforce remotely, and then some of these publications that have come out, TIC 3.0 and the NIST Pub, these are all the drivers that are influencing the federal government around zero trust. Turning back to Matt, we've talked a little bit about COVID-19 and its impact on businesses. And as Russ mentioned, many organizations have turned to legacy or existing remote access solutions to handle the much higher load of remote workers over the last few months. Is that the best way to secure a remote workforce? I think one of the core problems that a lot of organizations ran into this year is is exactly that the need to turn what was really a convenience, that remote access for many organizations was convenience, not necessity. You know, if you happen to be traveling and you needed to get access if you weren't feeling well and needed to work from home for a day, but it was not a majority of the organization as part of your standard and policy and as part of your infrastructure. And then having to expand that aperture to not only almost everybody in your organization, but for a lot of companies to what you could access through that raised a lot of concerns for organizations. And, and I mean, a lot of concerns. So what would happen is you now had a large population of people who were working from what I consider to be the most hostile networks in the world, which is our homes, connecting straight into your corporation and potentially once connected, not having things like um, idle turn off, not having things like split tunneling turned on. And we're hoping for the best. And this has caused a lot of issues for companies from a cost of how do I get all these people onto our VPN from internal cyber issues and technology issues where they've run into problems where, you know, the home network already had some sort of malware that traversed through that corporate device into your company and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of issues with some of the traditional remote access solutions that companies had, because again, their intent was never to be a corporate wide 24 by seven. This is how we run our business. There are alternatives. You know, one of them is a product called AOA based on stealth that we utilize. It's always on access. And the idea is to not use a VPN, for example, and definitely not to use RDP or remote desktop protocol, which is considered highly vulnerable in the world. But it gives you a tunnel between your endpoint, that laptop, and the application itself, just the application. 
and it gets rid of the concept of having environmental access. It gives you in real time access to the application you need when you need it, and that's it. And once you don't need it anymore, that goes away. And so there are these kinds of alternatives that are out there, and it helps people focus on reducing some of the costs and complexities of managing remote workers, and it helps uh, people like myself reduce some of the vulnerabilities associated with these remote access solutions. Uh, the NSA actually just released some guidance on a lot of the vulnerabilities associated with remote access solutions, and if you read some of that documentation, it can be pretty scary what is happening. And the significant increase of attacks against external VPN endpoints, Russ, you're probably seeing this a lot in the federal government. We see it local in the state. We see it in commercial. It's a huge spike and a huge concern. And this final question is for both of you. I'll ask Rusk first, but Matt, you can jump in afterwards and get the last word. What are some of the challenges of adopting widespread zero trust and how do organizations overcome them? Russ? Sure. You know, it's interesting as you think through the current state of cybersecurity in the federal government. You know, Matt did mention that the federal government is probably a little bit ahead because of the investments that they've made. But with that has come a tremendous amount of tooling in the environment. And all those cybersecurity tools drives up complexity. And when you add now zero trust and you have this only another tool that I have to put into the environment, folks can get very apprehensive. And as Matt mentioned earlier, where he talked about it's it's really a mind shift. So even though it is part of the evolution, we shouldn't look at it as just another tool that I have to put into the environment. And frankly, that's the great thing about stealth and why SAIC is is so excited about being the exclusive reseller of stealth in the federal space is because the way that stealth is deployed, we are not asking the customer then to go through and do a lot of wholesale changes within their cybersecurity ecosystem. That software-based model that is identity-focused really allows the customer to to add on this capability without increasing uh, complexity. And the fact that it's also identity-based is a tremendous asset in the federal space, because if you think about our DOD customers in particular, where you can have a person join the military and they will throughout their entire career work in multiple locations, have multiple jobs, their need for access to resources is constantly changing. And stealth really helps us to identify that individual and then change out over time what type of access that they need for their job. And no matter where they are, they get the exact uh, correct credentials that go along with them that give them access to the resources that they need. So there are plenty of challenges, but the good thing is that you know, Zero Trust does offer quite a few solutions to address those challenges. And Matt, the final word? So I, I agree with everything that Russ just said. And, you know, I think the hardest challenge for a lot of organizations when adopting Zero Trust, if they get past that mental component where they, okay, I get it, we have to make changes, it's where to start. It can seem very complex when you start talking about 
CMDBs, you start talking about micro-segmentation, you start hearing, maybe I have to replace all of my infrastructure. And to Russ's point, one of the great things about our partnership and why we are so excited is, you know, their expertise in this software platform, we can show companies, you don't need to be homogeneous. We actually thrive in heterogeneous environments. As long as systems can communicate over standard TCP IP protocols, we can help you with no network changes, configure micro segments. And the biggest piece of this, which SAIC is amazing for, is the ability to create, design, and implement software-defined networks and software-defined perimeters within organizations based on stealth. And again, why is that so great? There's no network changes. There's no hardware to purchase. There's none of that has to be there. I think the other thing that people need to really understand if they're thinking about getting into the zero trust journey is start small. I think too many organizations look at this and they see the end goal and the mountain of work they may have to do to get to that end goal. And that view stops them from starting. So start small. One of the things we always recommend is, you know, get an analysis. What are your crown jewels? What things are most important to you in your organization, be it a federal agency, a state or local government or a commercial entity, and focus around those first. Take your zero trust mindset and put it around those applications, those data sets, those environments. And by starting small, you can get your heavy lift done early and then it can spread very, very quickly. And I think, again, one of the other core misconceptions around zero trust is there is a significant amount of infrastructure to buy. And that just does not have to be the case with us. As Russ very clearly stated, it's software. And we can do everything with no capital expenditures. And I think that is absolutely key. And the final word from me is, you know, if you look at this, the hardest part for a lot of people is to really come to grips with that prevention is dead. Prevention is not the key for zero trust. It's all about rapid and active response to a situation. When something happens, and it will happen, it always does, being able to have your systems and your environment react, and in many cases automatically, to reduce any impact is key to our success and to stifling our adversaries. All right. Russ Smith, Matt Newfield, thanks so much to both of you for your expertise and for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. To learn more about the concept of zero trust, head over to the Unisys blogs at blogs.unisys.com. Also, a reminder to subscribe to this podcast on your platform of choice so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for listening to Security in a Zero Trust World, powered by Unisys. I'm Steve Mullen.